John chapter 4. And before I read, let's pray that God will speak to us personally and clearly through his word which he's given us to, to look at today. Amen. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who, is, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Phil. Uh, do keep that passage open, uh, and let's pray before uh, we look at this uh, passage together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to ask you for living water. 
that we do, as you say here, to believe you, that we would be among those many disciples that were joining you on this day. Uh, and Lord, that we would have understanding beyond our years and our experience and our spirituality as we come to your word. I pray, Lord, that you would feed us. And I pray, Lord, that anything that I say that detracts from your word would be forgotten. And Lord, that all that we would see here is you and how glorious you are and how wonderful it is to walk in the light of your life and love. Amen. Amen. So we're on a series, uh, Walking in the Light, in John's Gospel. Light's a big theme in John's account of Jesus. It starts off with the light of the world coming into the into the uh, the light of the world coming into the darkness and the darkness not receiving it. Uh, and as people who follow Jesus, we want to walk in His light. It's not always easy. Uh, and the big theme of John's Gospel is that we might see the things that are written here and believe in Jesus as that Son of God, and so by believing, have life, a life that is in that light. And I think what we've got here, if, if you were going to go to sleep in about 30 seconds' time, what, what I want you to do is to stay awake and see in this word of God that actually Jesus is life that satisfies. And my hope is, is by the end, we will be doing what he encourages the Samaritan woman to do, which is to ask me for waters of life, the waters of life, and to believe in him, in verse 21, and to be uh, some of those disciples that are signing up in chapter 4, verse uh, 1 there and 2. Why do we want to listen to this? It's because it is the word of God to us, spoken in all gentleness and love and compassion of the cross, of Christ. And I think the reason we want to listen particularly to this bit is that it helps us find peace in our desires and life uh, forever with Jesus. Um, I was sad to read this last week of the death of an actor called Matthew Perry. This may go over many of your heads, but he was an actor on a sitcom called Friends, which really was one of the biggest sitcoms I think that there's been. He was a key player in it. I think the way that he spoke and the way that he joked and his sort of slightly hopeless sarcasm filtered in and changed the probably most of Western culture. He was funny, he was gifted, uh, but he had very, very deep struggles with addictions. Uh, and he died, um, I don't know how old he'd be, probably 45 or something like that, have I got that right? 50, 54, 54. And he wrote a biography, and in that biography, uh, he wrote this. My mind is out to kill me, and I know it. I am constantly filled with a lurking loneliness, a yearning, clinging to the notion that something outside of me will fix me. But I had, but, but I had had all that the outside had to offer. Here's a man who, who was unbelievably famous who dated amazingly beautiful and talented women, and also who was incre incredibly wealthy. He'd done lots of great works for um, uh, philanthropy, and yet he's acknowledging here that he has this lurking loneliness and yearning, and he knows there's something out there that could fix that, but everything that he's got has failed to do that. He's got this desire and nothing that he's got, all the worldly things that we'd love to have and strive for, nothing that has fixed it. It's tragic. It's really sad. 
what I'm hoping is we're going to see actually that there is satisfaction and that what, he, what he's grasping for is available for us in Jesus. I think that's what we see in this passage. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Jesus learned uh, that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. People are signing up to follow Jesus in droves. Um, uh, and the reminder of the Pharisees just takes us back that there's going to be a deliberate contrast here between the Pharisees, uh, and Nicodemus in particular in the previous chapter, who are not really getting Jesus. In fact, they're starting to see him as being someone that they want to get rid of. Um, they're not like him at all. Uh, but we're going to see a comparison here with someone at the other end of the spiritual social register, the Samaritan woman. Um, but these, what we're seeing with the Pharisees is they won't believe in his name, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, God's promised king. Um, although brilliantly, Nicodemus will, I think, in the end, which is great. What do we see here? Uh, well, we're, we're, the, the action mainly happens at this well in Samaria. What you've got to know about Samaria is that it is on the way uh, back to Galilee. We uh, read that in verse 3. Uh, but also that Samaria are, to put it loosely, they are really the enemies of God's people. They're sort of, they're the not really acceptable Jews that slightly intermixed with, someone else, with another sort of nation. Uh, there's hostility between them. But you've got to go through this little zone, um, holding your nose and trying not to talk to anyone on your way back to Galilee. Uh, and whilst we're in Samaria, we see uh, that we're in this place called Sychar, near a plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. See, it really was part of God's people uh, here. It's been touched by God, this place. Um, but Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Isn't it great that Jesus is an ordinary person? He knows what it is to be thirsty and to be tired. But here he is in the middle of the heat of the day, sat down in broad daylight. It's the opposite of Nicodemus in the previous chapter where everything happens at night time and there's no understanding. Here we're in broad daylight. What do we see in that daylight? The light of the world casting light, particularly on the sin of this woman he meets. When we meet Jesus... Uh, and listen to him, we are going to be exposed, just like this woman is, and it can be a bit shocking. But the shocking that's, that starts in the noonday light here is actually because we've got a woman at a well. So when the Samaritan woman came to draw water, the disciples have, uh, have gone, by the way, verse 8, a Samaritan woman turns up to draw water, and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? What's her response? Can you see her response? She's shocked. The Samaritan woman said to him, uh, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. Not just a Samaritan, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Can you hear how shocking it is that Jesus has spoken to her? And it's for two reasons. One, she's a woman. Normally, if you're a woman at a well in the middle of the day, there's, you're a slightly shady lady. And actually, a woman at a well in the Old Testament were expecting to hear wedding bells. That's when people get together and they get married. Which is really interesting, isn't it, given that we've just heard about Jesus being the bridegroom. That is just back in uh, where, where we... Uh, John the Baptist was talking about him being the bridegroom in the chapter immediately before. I'm going to find it, verse 29. But also, we've just had Jesus being the bridegroom at the wedding in Cana in chapter 2, haven't we? 
So it's a highly charged sexual and relational moment. That's one reason why it's shocking. And the other reason is because she's Samaritan. We've already covered that. She's an enemy. She's an outsider. She's far off from the people of God. It's also shocking because we hear what her life is like in a minute as well. But let's carry on. So verse 10. Um, he, she says, look, how can, you, how can you talk to me? Because Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Uh, verse, uh, end of verse 9. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would not have asked him, uh, sorry, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She is missing out on living water, which we later learn in, um, in verse 14, swells up and springs up within us to eternal life. She is missing out on eternal life here and this living water for two reasons. Number one, she doesn't know the gift of God. Number two, she doesn't know who she's talking to. These are the things we've got to get straight as well. Have you worked out the gift of God and who it is that we're reading about here? That's why this gospel is here to help us see that Jesus is the gift of God, the Son of God himself, and who he is. He's the Messiah, isn't he? That's his role. And we're on our way to him owning that a bit later. Getting the identity of Jesus right is so important because that, that living water and eternal life hangs on it. So if you're thinking through Christianity or if you're helping others think through Christianity, you must help people understand the gift of God that is Jesus, God with us, and also uh, who he is, that he's come to be this Messiah, this rescuing king. And that's why you must have the Bible open. You must be showing people who are exploring it. And if you're exploring it yourself, you must go into there and say, who is this that we're talking about? You've got to get into that. Otherwise, you'll be like this Samaritan woman who is missing out. She's got it wrong. She should have asked him for the living water. And brilliantly, Jesus just patiently bears with her, doesn't he? And he's now going to explain it. I love the way Jesus does that. Uh, so let's carry on in verse 11. She, of course, is sceptical. Who wouldn't be? Uh, I love the scepticism of this woman. Uh, here she is, uh, verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. Where's your cup? And the well is deep. You've actually got to have a rope and a thing to get the water out. So where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our friend Jacob? Because you're lying panting next to the thing and you look tired and weak. Who gave us the well and drank uh, from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Do you see this is a sort of touching religious kind of big man name? I don't know what she's imagining Jacob's like, but her scepticism is because of the humanity of Jesus. Here is a tired, thirsty, dusty man who can't get to the water and so is asking her to give him a drink. Compared to the stories of greatness like Jacob, uh, it doesn't really seem very much, does it? Interesting, by the way, that, it, that she says that Jacob gave them the well and not God gave them the well. Which just shows the focus, isn't it, is on the humanity, not on the bigger picture of God. And so all she can see is the humanity in front of her and not that she's speaking to the Son of God. Verse 13, um, Jesus patiently bears with her. 
Uh, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus compares his water to the water of the world, ordinary H2O. What's the difference? Can you see the differences there? One, his satisfies. If you drink his, you will never be thirsty again. If you drink the world's water, you will always be thirsty. Number two, his endures forever. It is eternal in its nature. Whereas the water in the well probably still isn't there today if you were to go back and find this well. But also it's what the water does. So the ordinary cup of water, that can make me stop feeling thirsty and it can keep me going. But uh, it can't give me eternal life, no matter how much ordinary water you can. But Jesus is saying the water that he gives produces a result that's extraordinary, this eternal life. What's the other difference? Do you see where it comes from? It comes from Jesus' hand. The water, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water, I give him. Or I give them, I should say. This incredible water, its source is Jesus. The source is not Jacob. It's not the kind of hereditary contact with a religious people. It's not your people group. It doesn't come from your local shop. It doesn't come from anyone else except Jesus. That's right, isn't it, if he's the son of God, with life willing out of him, that just like the creator? Of course he's the only person that can produce this. The question is, is can she see that? Can we see that? What amazing water he is offering, though. How would this change the world if this water was on offer and everyone simply drank it? It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? It is on offer with Jesus to everyone. Look how she longs for that satisfaction in the same way that we do. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's got in mind just the practicality and the embarrassment of being out and having to draw her own water and the hardship of that. We are wonderfully relieved of that, having just to turn on a tap. She longs for satisfaction in a practical and physical way, doesn't she? So often, we want Jesus to do things for us that are too small, though, just like her. Do you see what she's landed on? Basically, you can solve my problem of having to walk here and being thirsty. She's totally missed eternal life, hasn't she? And so often we want Jesus to do things for us that are too small. When I play a game with my kids and we pray, you know, they could ask for anything from God, but they always pray, please can I win the game? Like, yeah, it's a good prayer. But you know, you could pray for world peace, you could pray for, you know, your character to be changed, or you could pray for victory over death rather than over your sister at the card game. That's what I'm like when it comes to God. I think that's what she's like here. It passes her by because she's so preoccupied with the physical and the practical now. She's not seeing the huge and the eternal. It's hard to see. So often Jesus doesn't seem satisfying because we don't want enough of him. Do you know that? Sometimes Jesus can feel like he's not satisfying because we don't want enough from him 
Like my kids saying, please can I win the game? And then they lose. Oh, Jesus. Whereas, actually, Jesus, please would you save me forever and ever for eternity for heaven? Maybe you'd change my character. You know, would you do something amazing with the church family? Crazily, he loves to answer those amazing prayers, doesn't he? Because here is Jesus trying to give eternal life, and I just want water. Let's not do that. Verse 15 and 17, Jesus is so gentle, isn't he? He just gently points out that she longs for satisfaction in a spiritual way more than a physical and practical way. Do you see how he does this? He's so gentle, isn't he? Here he comes. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You were right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. And later on, she's going to go and tell people, come and see the man who's told me everything I've done. And it's not good things, is it? Here's someone who is so driven by desire for intimacy and sexual gratification and love that she has gone from relationship to relationship, in, in, totally in contrary to God's law, but she longs for it so much that she's doing something which it makes her a total outcast to her society, sacrificing her family and her place. It's, it's, it's totally the opposite of Nicodemus in the previous chapter who does everything to be good because he wants to get into heaven. Here is someone who just wants to be loved. Her spiritual desire is to be accepted and taken as she is and to be loved and it doesn't work out and it doesn't work out and it doesn't work out. She needs the satisfaction because her spiritual hunger is misplaced in the physical appetite of sex or intimacy and that's led her into sin. And so instead of loving God with all her heart and soul and mind and strength as she should do in Deuteronomy 6.5, she's loving men and relationship and sex more than God, which leads her to live in a way that disobeys God's sin and is cutting her off from even her own community. And eventually that sin will result in judgment and the wrath of God, unless it's addressed. The judgment of people, but also most terrifyingly the wrath of God unless that spiritual thirst is satisfied and unless that sin is dealt with, she is in real trouble. I love the way that she responds to this in verse 19. This is exactly what I would do as Jesus exposed my spiritual desires and my needs that are driving me to sin. I don't know what yours are. But if he did this to me in the noonday light, exposing everything... I, I think this is very English. In verse 19, she goes, Ah, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. That's like, well, just let's talk about something else. Let's go and talk about that. Admission by changing the subject. You know, her way of life and being with God is being criticised. And so she wants to know, well, all right, come on then, where, where is the place that I should be with God? Where I'm able to love God properly. Is it here or is it in Jerusalem? I don't seem to have found it. And the answer is neither, isn't it? The answer is, woman, she's, Jesus replied, and here's the key bit that she's got to get, believe me. Isn't it? Believe me. 
Look, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come, it's in front of you, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and so his worshippers must worship in the Spirit and in the truth. There's a time coming when worship will happen in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, where we will be connected to God irrespective of geography or who your family line is or whether or not you're connected to Jacob. And that can only happen because your sins are forgiven. You don't need the temple in Jerusalem to sort your sin out, is what Jesus is saying. There'll be a time where you will be connected, bonded to God, by the Holy Spirit, because your sin has been dealt with. And the Spirit dwells not in the temple, but in each believer, irrespective of their sin, their nationality, their religious background, their connection with Jacob, the things they've done wrong, all these things that should be a barrier to this woman being with God and a barrier to you and I being with God and loving him and being loved by him, all those things are gone. There's none of them with Jesus. <coughs> Jesus is the well and the cup of God's grace for us. Without him, we stand by the well, unable to access God and his waters of living water. With Jesus, we have the cup and we have the rope and the bucket to drink deeply of that love and that grace. That's what he's saying. And say, so in verse 25, there's confusion by the woman, isn't there? The woman said, well, uh, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. And as readers, we're all supposed to go. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And as readers, we're supposed to go, he's doing it. Because hopefully by this point, as readers, we are totally on board with, yes, here is the one who can satisfy every desire, who can give us eternal life, who can help us to worship in spirit so we're connected to God without any barriers between him and us. And so when we get to verse 26, Jesus declared, <laughs> I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I love the way that John doesn't describe what happens because it's just left to your imagination, isn't it? Uh... <laughs> Uh, could we just go back over that last bit that you just said? Just, just talk me through that one again. That's what she needs to understand, isn't it? Is who this person is and to believe in him because here is real satisfaction for your spiritual desires, resolution for your sin and life eternal with God being loved and enjoyed. And so the Messiah has clarified here, hasn't he? You don't need to understand a concept. You just need to receive a person. Isn't that great? You don't have to understand a concept. You've just got to receive a person. That's Jesus. That's what she's got to do. Believe me. Have me. I will sort it for you. Jesus Christ with his water of life. That's what she's got to receive. Jesus Christ with his desire to destroy sin by dying on the cross. That's what, who she's got to receive. Jesus Christ with his ability to give us the spirit of God. That's who she's got to receive in order to have her desires spiritual satisfied. Here's an illustration. I think I should have got the table. 
when you are hungry and when you are thirsty and you go into Tesco's Express, which shelf do you go to? This is the shelf I go to. I love Fanta and fizzy drinks when I'm thirsty. And I love orange juice as well. And apple juice when I'm thirsty. Those, those probably where I'll go. The problem is, isn't it, if you're really thirsty, if you drink half a litre of Fanta, it sort of makes it worse, doesn't it? If you're hungry, I don't know what shelf you go to. I'm slightly embarrassed to own this. Please don't judge me. I do go for the Watson's Crunch, and I will occasionally go for a pork scratch. <laughs> now, I mean, look at me from the side. I think I'm looking pretty good on that, don't I? <laughs> now, the problem is, when we are thirsty and hungry, and you eat this stuff, it doesn't make you, it doesn't satisfy, does it? It doesn't satisfy. And that is pretty much what I do most of the time when I'm looking for my desire, like Matthew Perry, to be loved and accepted. And I go to people for that. When I'm looking for my desire to be... Um, oh, well, like, this, like this woman is looking for her desires, isn't she? Sexually and intimacy. She's going to men for it. And that's like doing this when you eat. What she needs to do is go to Jesus. And now the equivalent of that would be me going into the shop and discovering a letter on one of the shelves. Oh, well, I'll have that letter instead. And you open the letter, and actually, I didn't know how to depict this, it's a marriage proposal from, hopefully my wife, who owns all the farms that make this food. And if I've got her, I've got everything that is here, but in its much better form. Like the actual nice stuff the, that used to be before they made it into that. Does that make sense? The actual endless bits of water and sugarcane and the fresh oranges and the fresh apples. I've, if I've got her, I've got all of that. And so when I go into the shop and I'm hungry and thirsty, I would be stupid to turn that down. And so it is with us. We are hungry and thirsty spiritually. And it would be a great shame if we went looking in the world to satisfy our desires, which only make us more hungry like Matthew Perry, instead of coming to Jesus and saying, I want to have you because you can give me everything I need to worship in spirit and truth and to have life to the full. Here's your sexual gratification and pornography. Um, here's your glory of the people at work. Here's your sporting glory. That was a big one for me. Um, here's your. Um, can anyone try to shout one out? I can't run out. Oh, no, don't shout it out because then you'll go red because hopefully that'll be one you're wrestling with at the minute. Believe Jesus is the water of life who can satisfy your every desire, even those deep desires that are so deep we don't often notice them ruling us. Even those great desires, so great we hardly dare articulate them. Get them out into the noonday light of Jesus Christ. Dig deep and say, why do I do that? Why do I always feel so crushed by those people when they don't give me the glory I want? Why is it that I can't put the pornography down? You get it out, hopefully with other Christians, and you get it in the noonday light of Jesus and see how they're satisfied by him. I'll do that for you.
I wanted to be the best rower uh, that the country has seen, and I had every physical reason to be that. Uh, I lived for that glory. I worked unbelievably hard for that. It didn't happen. God took that away. But I tell you, the things that I did and the things that I said in order to be the best rower, I'm so glad he took that away. And what I realised is, is actually what God gives me as just an ordinary Christian is the glory of being his child in heaven. When he looks at each one of you, he sees, if you trust in Jesus, he sees his son and he says, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then he says, come and rule in heaven with me forever. You will rule even angels. And suddenly the glory of a medal and some lycra with GB written on it. That is pathetic, isn't it? Look how God has satisfied my amazing desires. And so I can put it down. My desire for glory, the wrath I deserved uh, for the jealousy of Jesus' glory, trying to make myself bigger than him, and I see that satisfied by being glorified, not here on earth by mortals for a couple of years, but in heaven forever by a heavenly host with Christ, which glory and acceptance has started already today. I hope you can see how the thing you desire for, those very deep and very great desires, will be satisfied by Jesus. But most of all, how we escape the wrath of God for getting it so badly wrong. Listen, if you're young here tonight, you're going to desire so much of the world. You're going to want stuff as you grow up, I tell you. And, and, and you might hope that Jesus will provide it. You might pray for it as I did for the rowing. But you will find, if you haven't already, you might not get it. And the question is, is what do we do if we don't get it like this woman? Now, the risk is, is that you get cross with Jesus and God for not providing what you think you should have had and what you think you want. But I want you to remember in those times to ask, like this Samaritan woman should have done, is why did God, did God promise me that thing? First of all. And then second, did he promise me that thing in this way? So for this woman, did he promise me that I would have a husband? And the answer is no. Did he promise me that I would have real relational intimacy and that I would know God in starting to be in the same way that Jesus knows God, in the Spirit? And the answer to that is yes. And so when we don't get the thing that we want, we've got to stop and think, well, actually, maybe Jesus is depriving us of those things we desire for our satisfaction to drive us, like this Samaritan woman, back to the one person who can give us living water that wells up to eternal life of satisfaction and joy and escape from wrath. I love as well that this passage also means for us as Christians that there are no barriers to the thirst-quenching sin-squashing love of Christ. There are no barriers. Listen, if, there's a, if I had a board, I meant to have a board, and we go out, we've got God in the middle, he's most holy, then the holy place, then God's people, then the outsiders, and then the woman in adultery, she's right out here. It's not because John's got a downer on women, it's he's trying to show Nicodemus is right in the middle, he's in the holy of holies, and this woman, she's way on the outside, culturally and in terms of what she does. 
And yet Jesus has a chat with both of them, doesn't he? And he loves them both, and he's trying to draw them both in. And so it is for us as Christians. You know, we want to go right on the outside, and when we meet people who are way on the outside, we want to ask the questions like Jesus does that brings them right back to their heart desires and in those places where they're sinning, where it's going badly wrong. And then we want to speak with experience and humility about how Jesus has satisfied your desire and rescued you from the wrath of God. I tried to do that with my rowing mates. Guys, you get so worked up about winning these competitions. It's great that we compete hard. But seriously, why do you think you get so worked up about that? I don't know, I don't know. Well, come on here, why? I just, I just want, I just want, I want to do something that means something. Yeah, I had that too. But do you really think that actually you're leaving something meaningful behind in the way that you're going about this and you're destroying girls' lives on the way and you're, you're breaking your family relationships and you're starting to be dishonest about what you take and the pills and the supplements? Is that a good thing? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. He said that actually we leave something meaningful behind and we're part of an eternally significant work if we follow him and we receive his forgiveness for our sin and then we get to do work with him that will last forever and ever. And they look at you and they're like, what? That's crazy. But one of them doesn't. That's what we're for. They're a long way from God. Find those people who are on the outside. Ask the questions about what's going on in their heart and what they desire when they're producing a behavior which is sinful and leaves them exposed to the wrath of God so that they might see forgiveness and satisfaction. Here's Dear Father of Mankind. I always love this hymn. Breathe through the heats of our desire thy coolness and thy balm. Let sense be dumb, let flesh retire. Speak through the earthquake, wind and fire, O still small voice of calm. Breathe through the heats of our desires, those things we want most deeply, please, Lord. And do it with your coolness and your balm, like Jesus does with this woman. Speak to us, even if it's through earthquakes, wind and fire, because it's so important that we have that forgiveness and that satisfaction. But speak to us, Lord. I might cry at this moment. I want to close with this. Matthew Perry, also, there's another quote in his book. He said what we should say of Jesus. This is what he said. I think it was about a woman. He said, you are everything I never knew that I always wanted. You are everything I never knew that I always wanted. Isn't it awful that Matthew Perry died without meeting Jesus so he couldn't say those words to Jesus? Yes, you are everything I never knew that I always wanted. That's what I pray we would say to Jesus and that we would find our friends saying to him. Where is Jesus already finding just satisfaction for you guys? Let's swap stories about where he's already doing that over coffee afterwards. But let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that you come to us so gently and so humbly, without judgment. We're all just like this woman. We're fumbling around. We've got no idea. We're trying to satisfy our desires, and we know we're getting it wrong. Uh, We know we deserve your wrath. And instead, Lord, you come to us in forgiveness, with peace and calm, longing to satisfy our desires and to do that forever.
And so, Lord, I pray that we would say, you are the everything I never knew and I always wanted. And we would love you forever. Amen.